other people are so tall. Okay. Uh, good. Thanks, you guys. That was a great, that was a great uh, time of worship. Um, well, um, my name is Dana. I already told you that. But I haven't told you this about myself. I am an avid collector of seashells. I love, I love to hunt, well, any kind of seashell. And I, it's not even just that I love it, it's that I can't keep myself from doing it. Like some people, like my best friend, we've been on a lot of beaches together, and she can just walk the beach like a normal person, looking up at the horizon and see things like the waves and the sunset, you know, and she can travel a great distance on the walk. I can't do it. I, I'm like, I can be on the beach for hours and I'm just covering like, like this much space because I'm just staring at the ground like a crazy woman. I'm, I'm just scanning back and forth because what kind of shells are there going to be? Right, like there might be the biggest clam shell I've ever seen, or a crab claw, or a scallop shell, or sea glass is so good, and you just never know. And so, I never look up. I always go out in the morning thinking, today I'm going to look at the ocean and see the horizon, and I can't because what if the most amazing shell of my life is on the ground and I miss it? So, all right. I lived in Halifax for a few years before I moved here, and um, the beach that was closest to my house was not a very good beach. It's this little place. Now, it's fun to visit. If you're a tourist, you should go. Um, it's called Fisherman's Cove, but it's quite small, and it doesn't have great shells. So it was close to me, and I would go there all the time, and there was never anything good. There were, however, broken pieces of sand dollars. And that is hard because if there's broken pieces of something, it means that not very far out in the water, there are whole ones of those getting smashed against the rocks. And every once in a while, I would hear some kid on the beach just screaming with delight and laughing and holding up a sand dollar. And I would hate that kid. <laughs> right? Like, I love kids, but uh, because, because I don't know if children can really appreciate the most elusive of all seashells. Right, which is what the sand dollar is. It's very delicate. If you don't hold it properly, it falls to pieces. I wanted one. And I didn't want to buy one at the store. I know you can do that. I wanted to find one. And so one day I was walking through the shallow water at the beach, and all of a sudden there it was, this very small, perfect circle in the water, a sand dollar. My very first one. It was so exciting. So I'm cradling it in my hands, trying not to squish it, right? And I'm walking. I'm going to walk back to my car. And as I'm walking toward the shore, I see another one sticking out from under the rock. This never happens. This is insane. And so I pick that one up. And now I'm cradling two. And I think, what is this magical place? It's the same beach I've been in my whole life. And so I'm walking back and forth, like very carefully looking. And I found eight sand dollars that day. I'm not kidding. I didn't make up that story. I could have found more, but it was so dark I couldn't see anymore. It's not really good to be in the ocean when it's too dark to see. So I checked the tide charts at home to see when the tide would be out again, and I came back like three days later. That's when I was free. And then I came back again the day after that, 
And then every day after that for the rest of the summer. And every day I was finding more of them. And here's the thing. I didn't tell anyone about it. Not a soul. I just quietly rearranged my work schedule so I was always free at low tide. And I learned that like those tall, thin cups from McDonald's, that's the perfect size to put a stack of sand dollars and not have them all crush each other. And I learned how to, like I read articles about how to clean sand dollars and rinse them in fresh water to harden the shells. On my best day that summer, I brought home almost 40. I still have them. Don't laugh because they're in, well, they're in a box in my house. Anyway, eventually it got too cold to go in the water anymore. Like it was so far into the fall, the water was freezing. You really shouldn't go in. And, and so then all through that excruciatingly long Nova Scotia winter, I just waited to get back to the beach. But the next summer, nothing. Not one sand dollar the whole summer long. It turns out, because I asked some people, there had been some kind of freak hurricane out in the ocean at just the right time and just the right place that forced all this cold water inland that year. And that's what sand dollars like when they're small is cold water. And so it happened that for one fluke year, all the sand dollars collected at that beach and they were just waiting to be found. And I must have spent 100 hours on the beach that summer (laughs) because I just had this special little secret that I was keeping that was just mine, and it was amazing. And I was reminded of that story this week because of the parable that we're studying this morning. We're in the middle of a series called Kingdom Stories, and we're looking at this set of stories or parables that Jesus used to try to describe what the kingdom of heaven was like. And remember, if you've been here, he's both, he's trying to do two things at one time and they're opposite to each other. He's both trying to illuminate the kingdom of God. He wants to tell people what the kingdom of God is like. And at the same time, he's trying to wrap up and keep secret what the kingdom of God is like if people aren't ready to hear it yet. So he's trying to do both of those things at the same time, and the way that he does it is he tells a story instead of teaching in a direct way. So he tells a parable, and it keeps it veiled from people who aren't ready, and it opens it up for people who are. So we've been hearing stories about seeds and weeds and mustard and leaven, and today we're going to hear about treasure. Here's the story. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So you get two stories for the price of one this morning, and we're going to dig into each one and see what's going on. The first one, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is a great story. It seems so simple, like it's so short, so simple. But what do you imagine is really happening? Like it's a fascinating day, right? This guy is in a field. What is he there for? Is he just passing through on his way to somewhere else? Is he working there maybe? I don't know. And he stumbles across some kind of treasure. 
It's literally every little kid's dream to just be walking around and trip over treasure. That's amazing. That never happened. We don't even know how the treasure got there. Did someone drop it? Right? Was it just laying there? Was it buried and sticking out a little bit? Had it been placed there a long time ago for safekeeping? Were there possibly pirates in that field at some point? We don't know. But he's in this field, and he's got his eyes on the ground, as you should always do, right, just in case. He's watching the ground, and he sees it, some kind of, in my imagination, some kind of box sticking out of the ground. So he bends down, and he brushes the dirt away, and he opens it up, and then he shuts it immediately. Right? That's what I imagine. And his eyes dart around to make sure no one's watching. Cameron, can you put the next slide up for us? Oh, there it is. Okay. I know this is from the Shawshank Redemption, and we all know what Red is going to dig up. But this is what I imagine, right? Like he's sneaking along through the field, and he opens this thing, and then he shuts it really quickly. He doesn't want anyone to know what he found. And so he finds some kind of landmark. Like maybe there's a tree or a wall. Maybe he measures the distance from the road to kind of decide where he is. And then he digs a hole in the ground and buries that box, makes it so no one can see. And then he runs home as fast as he can. It's so interesting that he doesn't take it. Right? Why doesn't he take it with him? Why doesn't he just grab it and run? Maybe it's too big. (laughs) Maybe it was too heavy. Or maybe he just wants to make sure that it really, really belongs to him. Like he might not want to end up in a situation later where somebody could say, you have to give that back. So he goes home and calls his real estate agent and finds out who owns that field. Is it for sale? No, not really. But, you know, you never know if the price is right. And so, like, I just, I picture this guy looking around his house, calculating, what can I get rid of, right? What kind of price can I get? And over the coming days, he liquidates everything he can think of, furniture, special cloth, jewelry, pottery, his sports car, right? The animals then, his property, and then his home, everything. He sells everything. And he makes an offer. And he doesn't know if it's going to be enough, but they accept it. And I think he must be like he must be thinking to himself, "Oh my gosh, they have no idea. They don't even know what's in their field." He's so lucky. So then he goes back into that field at dusk and finds the right spot and digs up the box and opens it. And I mean, maybe there's like a glow from inside if it's a movie, right? That sort of thing. And I think he probably just sits back and sighs with contentment. Because it's the best thing he's ever had. And now it's really his. Do you identify with that story? Can you imagine yourself being there? Again, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. I love this story, too. I love imagining a merchant. Like, can you imagine him? I picture someone tall with baggy pants and a beard and a scarf wrapped around his head to keep the sun off. 
And he doesn't talk very much, and he doesn't haggle over prices, right? He's not interested in cheap, everyday things. He's been in that business long enough to know exactly what he's looking for. And what he's looking for are pearls, fine ones, perfect ones. No blemishes, extraordinary color, the best of the best. And when someone is selling pearls in the market, he pulls out magnifying glasses and scales to weigh them, and he spends time with them, spread out on dark cloth so he can see it, examining each one in turn, turning it over between his fingers, peering at it. He's seen some beautiful things, but he's still looking. And then one morning he's sorting through a small pile, And he finds something interesting. It stands out from the rest. He turns it around and around. He's looking for any scratches or dents or bumps. There's nothing. It's gleaming. And several times, I think, he puts it down and then picks it back up to look again. Because he almost can't believe it's as good as it seems to him. That's what he's been looking for his whole career. And so he wraps it up carefully and gives it back to the woman who's selling it and I think gives her some money to keep it for the rest of the day. He doesn't have enough money to buy it yet, but he's going to come back. He absolutely wants it. And so then he rushes from stall to stall at the market, right? Because he knows who will pay the best price for the colored gems and the precious stones that he's got in his pocket and his bags. And so he sells everything. Every single astonishing item that he spent years collecting, just gone in a few hours. And then his cart and his cloak and his staff and his camel. It doesn't matter how he'll travel. Nothing else matters, just this one thing. And he goes back to the little tent. And the woman is clearing up for the day, but true to her word, she hasn't shown the pearl to anyone else. And he spreads out all the money he's collected He's never had that much money at one time before. (laughs) And he wonders if it'll be enough. And she smiles and nods and unwraps the cloth, and he picks up the pearl and turns away and holds it up to the fading light because it's his. Does that feel real to you? Can you imagine yourself there? I love these parables. They're so brief, right? Every, each one is just a couple of sentences. But they paint such a rich, intense picture. They capture this fleeting moment when a person is trading their entire life, everything they have, for a treasure. Let's notice a couple of things about these stories. First of all, I find it very interesting that we're told both stories so close together and that they're very similar. But the one striking difference is the way they find that treasure. Right? In the first story, the man just stumbles upon it by accident. He's just walking along. There's no sense that he expects to find anything. There it is. It surprises him. comes out of nowhere. The second story is different. That man is searching. He's looking and hunting and trying to find it. In fact, he's training to find it. Like he's getting better at finding what he's looking for, developing his eye, learning to discern value. 
And they're parables, right? And so Jesus is clear what they're about. We don't have to wonder. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. So it's right for us to consider what the searching and the stumbling upon mean about the kingdom. And I think we see both of those things all the time. I think we see people who are actively, urgently, passionately searching for the kingdom of God. Maybe they're reading tons of books. They're devouring scripture. They're full of questions. They drill you with questions. And actually, it's kind of intimidating. And you wish that they would relax a little bit with all the questions. Or maybe they're trying out different religions, seeking different spiritual experiences. They're meditating. It might freak you out a little bit because you feel like they're messing around in some dangerous stuff. But listen, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to see the merchant in those people. Try to see them as people who are learning a craft, a skill. They're trying to learn who God is what he's like, how to interact with him. They're going to look carefully at each thing, look deeply at a lot of different pearls as they're learning. It's okay to be searching. Maybe you were like this merchant, were you? Maybe you searched for a long time, kept asking questions, kept moving around, kept pushing past all the pat answers that people gave you because you want to know Who is God anyway? What is he like? What does it mean to follow him? Why is the world like this if God is good? Good for you. Keep searching. Keep leaning in. Keep learning. But then there's this other story. And we see people like this all the time. People who were just walking along, minding their own business, and they tripped over the kingdom of God just fell flat on their face in front of Jesus, right? That is so funny when that happens. They just stumbled into a church. Someone invited them to a summer camp. Or their new neighbor came over for coffee and started talking about Jesus in a way they never heard before. And something opened up inside them. Like a light came on and they leaned forward to hear because they never heard anything like that before. They never felt this inside them. Some people have dreams where God speaks to them, or they have a near-death experience. There are so many ways that we can trip over the kingdom of heaven, and it just changes our whole life. We didn't even know. Maybe that was you. Maybe you weren't looking for any of this, but then you found it, and you knew right away it was everything you wanted. Good for you. Grab hold of that thing. You're right to feel that way. Some people just stumble upon it. Some people are searching for it. But where the stories converge and line up is in this found moment. You know what I mean? In both of them, there's this moment when the thing is in their hands and they know that they found it. Have you had that moment? That moment when you know this is what I want. When the only appropriate response is to, is to sell everything you have to get it. In the late 80s and 
early 90s, um, my church in Niagara Falls was learning a lot from Willow Creek. Right? Willow Creek was kind of, it was, it was the big thing at that moment. But the internet wasn't a thing yet. And so you couldn't attend a Willow Creek conference online. You had to go there <laughs> to the actual place. And they were fantastic about that. They ran conferences all the time about every imaginable kind of leadership. And people would go from all over North America and all over the world and attend these conferences. And at that time, my parents were both really involved in ministry at our church. And so they both at different times traveled down to Chicago uh, to attend these conferences. And I remember when my dad came back from one of those trips, he was so excited, he couldn't stop talking about it. Now, my dad is an accountant. Um, He is very level-headed and practical and financially responsible. And besides the Toronto Maple Leafs, he doesn't get, like, really excited about too many things. So if my dad is going to say something about church, it's going to be about whether the budget is sustainable. That's just who he is, and he's good at it, right? That's my dad. But I remember being in the car with my dad one day, and I was about 16 years old, and he said, you know, um... I've been thinking that maybe we should move to Chicago. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, well, like if I quit my job and we moved to Chicago, we could, we could go to church at Willow Creek. Like we could go there every week. And I was like, um, like where's my real dad, right? Like that's never, he's never talked about anything like that before. I, I said, Really? And he's like, well, I know it doesn't make any sense, but I just, I felt something when I was down there. And I don't know how to explain it. I just, I just think we should go there or something. I think I should be there. What do you think about that? And you know what, you guys, even at 16 years old, like right in the middle of high school, and I had no desire to leave any of my friends, but I knew, I knew that this was different than any conversation I'd ever had with my dad. He found it, right? He found something. And I know Willow Creek is not the same as the kingdom of heaven, right? Those two are not the same. But he found something at that place with those people that he didn't even know he'd been searching for. And so I said, 16 years old, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Absolutely, let's go. Because that, I think, is what you do. That's what both of the men in our stories did. There's the found moment, and then there's the response. The response is exactly the same whether they were searching or they stumbled across it. They sell everything they have and buy it. There's no hesitation. And there's no conversation in these stories about what each of them is giving up. Right? There's no like agonizing sense of, oh, can I live without this, and what if? There's none of that. It's not even relevant. Instead, all we read is that there's joy at finding the treasure. Imagine how incredible something would have to be that your immediate gut reaction was to sell everything you have to buy it, and you would feel no regret. Alone in the dark in the field after he bought it, holding up that box that he hid in the ground. And that guy 
knows he has absolutely come out on top. He's got nothing else to his name. What is in that box? What is in that box? How good is the kingdom of heaven that that's the feeling? Here's the other thing I love about these stories. We have no idea as readers how much either the treasure in the field or the pearl actually costs to buy. We don't know. We couldn't say how much either one of those two men were worth. All we know is that selling all they had somehow came out to the exact right amount. That's, that's crazy. It's a brilliant parable, isn't it? It costs everything you have. But no matter how much or how little you have, everything you have will absolutely be enough to buy it. It's, a, it's beautiful in the story. But we do not like that in real life, do we? How far into this story have you ever walked? How far do we usually get in our life? I think these moments happen multiple times over the course of our lives. Moments where we stumble across the kingdom in unexpected and powerful ways. Moments where a season of persistent and and careful searching finally yields results. And we find what we've been looking for. Moments where somehow, finally, we find it. We find it. We see it. We know that this is it. This is the one thing. This is going to change my whole life. Like my dad after he visited Willow Creek. And then what happens, the natural response, is to grab hold of it. To make sure you never lose it. To do whatever you can to hang on to it. To sell all you have and quit your job and move your family to Chicago. Except we never moved to Chicago. And everybody knows why. It's impractical. (laughs) It's totally unwise. We owned a house. My parents both had good jobs. My sister and I were in school. It was in another country. It would have changed our whole lives. What makes us think that it's wiser to say no to extreme action? Why do we think that status quo is somehow the more mature thing to do? When has that ever been true in relation to the kingdom of God? Not when people were following Jesus. They walked away from everything, their homes, their families, their jobs, just left it all on the beach and took off after that guy. And it wasn't true during the early church when it was being formed. People there were selling fields and homes and bringing this money because it was so important to distribute it to the poor. And they were traveling all over the known world preaching the gospel. But it is amazing how quickly we get talked out of a radical response that made so much sense when we were holding the pearl in our hands. We almost always stop just short of selling everything we have. I want you to know, like, 
I don't blame my dad for that, right? Like, I totally get it. I understand what he was doing. I, I don't have any resentment about it. But I do always wonder, what would our lives have been like? How might they have been different if my dad had quit his job before he took the time to think it through? I'm not advocating for irrational, knee-jerk responses. Like, I, I know, but... I just think we so naturally lean the other way. We so naturally lean to keep things the way they are. And I think we miss out. There is a story about um, these two kids who are walking through the woods one day. And as they're walking, they come upon this wall and it's a wall that is so long, they, they try, and they can't find the ends to get around it. And it's so high that they can't climb it. And while they're standing there trying to figure out what to do, one of the kids takes off his cap and throws it over. And his friend is like, what are you doing? What did you do that for? And he says, well, now we have to find a way to get over because I need my hat. On May 25, 1961, uh, President Kennedy made a public announcement before Congress that the United States would put a man on the moon within a decade. And according to a very reliable source, which is the West Wing, um, when he made that announcement, there were no current plans or programs to land on the moon. None. Rather... JFK wanted to, like, he wanted to catch up to the Soviet Union in the area of space travel. And he just felt like the USA should be able to put a man on the moon. And so he made this public commitment. And he committed his team to making it happen. Now they had to find a way. Because the whole American public knew. And they did it. Some of you right now are in the middle of your found moment. I mean, I would imagine that for the 11 youth who just got back from Chick, that you heard things about God in a way you've never heard before. That you felt Jesus speaking to you, calling you in a way that was amazing and overwhelming. That is a found moment. It's pretty common to experience it when we're away from normal life for a little bit. And sometimes people try to describe it as like a mountaintop experience, and they'll tell you not to get too caught up in that because that's not real life anyway. Listen, it's true that you can't live your whole life at a youth conference. There's not going to be a stage and a band and a lineup of killer speakers in your bedroom every morning. But the power and presence and depth of commitment and the passion for the things of the kingdom, I've got news for you. That is real life. And when you find it, and it's different from anything you've ever felt before, don't write that off. Instead, like, lock onto it. Do whatever you can to, like, plant your feet in that reality where you've never been. Change your plans, sell your stuff, read and learn and meet together and make new plans. Create something. Change your life. 
so that you can stay in that reality. Because that is the kingdom of heaven. And you won't be giving up anything. You'll be gaining the best thing there is. That's the application. First of all, I want you to understand that you will have found moments. Everybody has them. You can look for them, but if you don't look for them, you're probably going to trip over it, right? So that's okay. You're going to have found moments. You will find the kingdom. Try to know that so that when it happens, you're not confused. You can trust it. You can enjoy it. And second, when it happens, when you hear a call, when you know in your gut, I should follow this thing. When there's a crazy opportunity in front of you. Now, this is really simple to say and really hard to do. Resist talking yourself out of it. Try not to talk yourself out of the crazy. Okay? Try to do it. Instead, this is the third thing. Toss your cap over the wall. Find a way to irrevocably commit yourself to the action, to obedience to God, so that you can't change your mind. That can be so many things. It can be as radical as selling a house or a car or inviting someone to stay with you because they need a place to live. Or it can be as simple as telling someone, I think I'm supposed to go overseas on a missions trip. Or even saying out loud for the first time, I've been struggling with addiction and I need some help. Whatever it is, do it. Do something irreversible. Before you can change your mind, toss your cap over the wall so that you have to find a way to see it through. I imagine that when the man got home from the field that first night and started gathering belongings to sell, his wife had some questions. I imagine that his children and his in-laws were upset when he sold their house really upset, and for good reason. I imagine that when the merchant was selling his other precious stones, that there might have been a moment when he was holding one out and the memories of where he got that and how long he'd had it kind of flooded over him. And maybe he hesitated for a moment. But for both of them, they called to mind the goal. They remembered the box that was buried in the field. They remembered the pearl that was wrapped in the cloth at the stall down the road, and it focused their vision. It gave them courage to continue joyfully selling all they had. We get so scared. We get so scared. What if I do something crazy? What if it ruins my life? Indeed. Now I'm going to mix up our parables for a minute. But remember the mustard seed that gets planted right in the middle of neat, tidy rows of carrots, ruining forever the original plan of the garden? What if you do something crazy? And what if it makes your life worthwhile? I'm going to pray for you. Father, we come this morning and I don't know 
what part of the story my friends are living in. I don't know how many people have found and buried a treasure and are trying to, trying to get away to, to go back to that. I don't know how many people are searching the market stalls, looking for the thing that will answer the question in their heart. I don't know how many of us have done it, have sold it all, and we're holding the prize, and we are happy and glad. But I know that your kingdom is worthwhile. And so I pray for us. Would you awaken desire in us? Would you make us people who are searching? Would you make us people who know what we find, the value of what we find when we stumble over it? And would you give us courage? Would you help us trust our gut response to you? Give us courage to turn things upside down so that we can have the best thing that there is. We offer all of our hopes and our dreams and our longings to you this morning to do with them what you would. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm really happy to have been with you, and you are invited to join us for coffee and to browse the dishes at the back. (laughs) Thanks for being here.